I am a little nervous today. I wish I was, I wish I was like a normal preacher and I could prepare messages ahead of time. I haven't, I haven't mastered the skill. I ha that's, that's a lie. I haven't got anywhere near that skill. <laughs> I, um, I require a certain amount of stress to activate, I think. Yesterday, we talked about hindrances to being a disciple. The first day, we defined what it means to be a disciple. And today, what I want to talk about is <clears throat> tests make a disciple. I'm going to focus a lot um, today on Peter and his life because he's really exemplary. He, he, he's exemplary in the fact, at least in my experience, like I identify very much with him. Maybe not everybody does as much based on your personality and things. But the remarkable things about Peter and his life is that we have a lot of data points. He's, he's central to, you know, he's in Jesus's inner circle with the three. Um, so there's a lot of places where he is where we see a disciple interacting with Jesus that we just don't have access to. Like, I don't, I don't know how Bartholomew was dealing with some of those situations, but we see Peter there again and again. And then his ministry in, in Acts and in the later church is also a significant feature. And so we just have a lot of, we have a lot of access to Peter's life. And because we have a lot of access, I presume that there's similar things happening with the other apostles as well. Because they're kind of common, you know, we, we, we see in Peter's life, we see this success and failure and success and failure and success and failure. And all along the way, we see what we were talking about the other day, this common growth trajectory forward, where in spite of his sometimes very precipitous failures, he continues to get back up and he continues to move forward. And I think that's the main point that I want to drive home. I'm just going to play my cards right here and right now. Where I want to end up at the end is with convincing all of us that the life of a disciple is not a life where you never fail. In fact, it is the failures of your life that prove and refine your discipleship. The capacity to go through an experience with God make the wrong decision, do the wrong thing, say the wrong thing, make the wrong conclusion, and continue to follow Jesus, this is really where the disciple proves his life. In Peter's story, you know, we, we started with him on the first day when we were defining a disciple, so it's, it's fitting that we look at him here. And he starts well. Right? He jumps out of Dad's boat. Um, it seems to be that the first hearing of Peter that's rec uh, about, that Peter hears about Jesus that's recorded is from either his brother or his cousin, I don't remember. Somebody tells him about Jesus, and he's like, oh, okay. And then later this story happens in Matthew 4 that we saw where, where he jumps out of the boat. So there's some kind of precondition. There's some kind of, like, perking his ears up about this Jesus that's, that's running around. So he, he, he starts well. And, and 
it's if we start today's lesson by assuming that we start well, assuming that we've made it through Monday's message, we know what it is to be a disciple, we made it through Tuesday's message, we've managed to climb over the rocks of offense that come from Jesus, and we're entering in like, like Israel across the Jordan, or like a Christian in our baptism, our own personal Jordan, we enter into this life as a disciple, that's not it. Like, that's not done. That's the entrance. It's important to think of baptism as an entrance. It's a place where things begin. And the narrative arc of God's people in the Old Testament is that when they cross the Red Sea, they are in the Promised Land. Uh, in North Africa, there's, um, in the ancient church, there's a, a, a tradition in North Africa that they would give milk and honey at their baptisms. I've done this in the past sometimes. I've, we've even done it here a few times. And I personally think it's a very, very beautiful metaphor. The, the statement of the church in, in giving a newly baptized person milk and honey at their baptism is that this is it. Like, this is the promised land. It's not about going to heaven when you die. Right here, right now, the other side of Jordan, where you just came out of the waters of baptism and enter into the kingdom, this is the promised land. But the promised land isn't pacified. There's battles to be fought and foreign alien and enemies of God and giants and beasts and all kinds of things in the promised land. And the point of crossing the Jordan was not that there would be no battles. The point of crossing the Jordan was that they would know once they crossed Jordan, if they were faithful to God, God would be faithful to them. Nobody could beat them, but they still had to fight. And that's the disposition, that's the proper disposition of the Christian. Nobody can beat you, but you've got to fight. And God trains us. He trains his disciples through the things that we go through. And where our character is proven and where our character is developed is in the low points of your life. It's not, uh, if we track Peter's successes, they're, they're important, they're beautiful, they're amazing things that Peter does in his life. But they're almost always preceded by a, uh, by a failure. And we'll, we'll look at some of those today. This entrance, though, I, I just want to make sure we understand, it's not enough to get over the initial hurdles. We have to, discipleship is a long game. Discipleship is a long game. I, I think that looking back on my own experience in life, this is probably one of the most mm, poorly understood principles of my early Christianity. And, and older brothers, when I was a young man, older people told me, uh, so when I came into the kingdom, I had a lot of doctrinal things that I had to wrestle through to, to approach to the kingdom. You know, I had grown up in the evangelical world, and so ideas like eternal security and nationalism and a bunch of other things were very, very confusing to me as a brand new Christian. And I didn't have, I didn't have videos that I could watch. I didn't have people that I could talk to. I, ha I hadn't come across books that talked about those issues from a proper perspective. I just had an evangelical church around me and they weren't helping me with those issues. And so as I grew, as I was wrestling with those things, I was just digging in. I was just digging into to convictions and digging into the Sermon on the Mount and digging into this stuff. And it, it hadn't occurred to me how much tragic loss I would experience with the people that I was walking with over the years. 
In fact, I was talking to an older preacher one time, had very few occasions uh, to talk to older preachers, but one of the first times I did, um, I told him I was wrestling with this, these issues of eternal security, and I didn't know how to make heads or tails of it because I had been so thoroughly indoctrinated as a child. Um, my whole religious experience was connected to that, to that principle, and it was hard for me to undo. And when I was talking to this preacher, he said, he said something to the effect, he said, you know, there's, there's plenty of arguments to be made. Like, I can, I can try to compel you from the scriptures. He said, but what I'm sure of is that when you walk with somebody and know somebody and love somebody and minister with somebody and watch them fall, you won't wonder anymore. That's what solves that dilemma. And those experiences happened to me several times with men that I loved and cared for, young women that I watched grow up in the church fall away. There's, there's a lot of fallout in the church. And I think it's irresponsible not to take full stock of that, especially if we're going to talk about discipleship. A lot of people fail in discipleship. A lot. I spent a time in Pennsylvania with... Um, what I thought at that time was the bright white hope of the church, like brilliant. I was a little bit older than the people that came to my house to pray, but once a week we would have prayer meetings and we would cry out to God and we would weep and we would repent and we would ask God to do things. And I was really, really, really hopeful for the first time in my church experience there because it was a very difficult place for me for me personally, but when I got around these young people and we would pray together, I would feel hopeful. I was like, okay, God's going to do something here. There, of that, I can see that living room. We would meet in my living room. I think it was Thursday nights, and I can see all the faces there. My hope for the future of the church there, and I think that Two of them are faithful now. Two out of 15, 18 young people. These weren't nominal young people. For all of their peers, they were the ones that were, they, they were pushing themselves. They were trying to preach the gospel. They wanted to pray. They wanted to be involved in spiritual things. They were really stretching themselves for the kingdom. And I think it's important to take stock of these things, that the journey of the disciple is not done in a moment of time. It's proven over the long stretch. And that would be very discouraging and disheartening if it weren't for some of the reassurances from Jesus and the apostles in the New Testament that these are things that we should expect. In the parable of the sower that we went over the other day, there's in that analysis, 25% of the ground is good ground. One in four. Jesus says other things like, straight is the gate, and narrow is the way that leads unto life, but broad is the way that leads unto death, and many there be that go in thereat. It's something that we have to account for from time to time in our own life. As we talk about Peter today, 
I want to I want to begin with a contrast to Peter. The contrast to Peter is Nicodemus. You know, the Nicodemites were a term that was used for people who were secret disciples, who wanted to come, even in the Anabaptist era, people who wanted to, to be friendly with and, and agree with the Anabaptist movement, but didn't want to commit themselves. And the spirit of Nicodemus, and I don't know what Nicodemus's state was by the time all things ended up, you know, it's laudable, it's a good thing. He knew some really good questions to ask. He cared enough to meet with Jesus, although he wanted to make sure it was by night. He wanted to make sure that his reputation wasn't too much damaged by the interaction. He wanted to make sure that nobody saw. He wanted to make sure that there was very little staked or leveraged on the encounter with Jesus. And the reason that I think that Nicodemus is kind of the the opposite, the antithesis of the Peter, is because Nicodemus is always holding back. He's always afraid to stake the ground. And Peter, for all of his faults, for all of his failures, is never afraid to stake his claim. And the boldness of Peter, and I'm not saying that we all have to be these boisterous, loudmouth people, but the boldness of Peter, what I'm saying is this, is that the disciple should be bold. The, the, disciple, the disciples that I've seen in my life, regardless of their personalities, regardless of, uh, of the dynamics of their own you know, environment and the way that they speak to people, regardless of their, of their personal persuasions, the disciples that I see in the world around me that are, that, are, that are making a difference in the kingdom, that are causing the gospel to move forward, are people who do not wait. People who would rather be wrong and moving forward than right and stuck behind. And there's something about that that God tends to use. I, it, we see it in, this, in the life of Peter that it's better for him to get out there and to make a claim and to do an exploration and to find out that he misstepped and to correct his path and to keep moving forward. That's a better place than for Nicodemus to hide in the shadows and have to wait until he's 100% sure, till he's resolved all the dilemmas, till nothing's held back, because I have watched so many people sit and wait until everything is known, everything's declared, everything's figured out, and they can't move forward until then, and that does not produce discipleship. That's a life lived waiting. And the disciple... What does is, what is the eunuch say? Here is water. What hinders me? What's holding me back? What do I have to do? How do I get the, anything that's in the way out of the way? I want in. And that, that, brothers and sisters, is the essential disposition of the disciple. I want in. What's in the way? How do I fix it? I'm not going to wait. I'm not going to hide. I'm, I don't have to figure everything out. I just want in. I see Jesus. I know who he is. I want in. That's the activating force of the disciple. I, I have a lot of text, so I'm going to jump in my notes. Let's look at Peter. He makes it in the door, like we said. You can start, uh, the lion's share of these texts are, are Matthew, but we'll get to Luke and John a little bit by the end. Um, 
But I, for simplicity's sake, I tried to stay in Matthew unless there was something particular I was trying to point out. So why don't we jump to Matthew chapter 14. We could make a study out of, you know, every event that happened in Peter's life. It's, it's quite a story. But I'm going to jump into the narrative right here in Matthew 14. And let's, let's zoom in around. This is um, in around verse 15. It's the, the, the five loaves and the two fishes and the gathering of the fragments. And then in verse 22, we'll pick up in straightway. Jesus constrained his disciples to get into a ship and to go before him unto the other side, while he sent the multitudes away. And when he, had seen, when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up into a mountain apart to pray. And when the evening was come, he was there alone. But the ship was now in the midst of the sea, tossed with waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went unto them, walking on the sea. This is a new thing. Nobody's seen this before. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, obviously, saying, It is a spirit. And they cried out for fear. But straightway Jesus spoke unto them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I, be not afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it be thou, bid me come unto thee on the water. And he said, Come. And when Peter was come down out of the ship, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw the wind was boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand and caught him and said unto him, O thou of little faith, where didst thou, wherefore didst thou doubt? And when they were come into the ship, the wind ceased. And then they that were in the ship came and worshipped him, saying, Of a truth, thou art the Son of God. What a story, huh? There's so many captivating things by that, in that story. And it's such a, it's such a, it's such a snapshot of how I understand the character of this man, Peter. Something totally new, and he's not running away from it. Nobody's ever seen anybody walk on water, and they're all obviously afraid. And why wouldn't you be? This isn't normal stuff to see Jesus walking across a stormy sea. So nothing, nothing, nothing fits in your mind, in your frame of reference. You know, they tell us how our brains work. You know, our brains are pattern recognizers, and so much of what we do in, intellectually, just neurologically, is just... Sorting out patterns. I've seen this before. I don't have to pay attention to it. This is all new. This is all new. There's no category for somebody walking across the water in a storm when you all feel like you're about to die. There's no place to put that. And what is normal when you, when you come across something brand new, shocking, and scandalous is to be afraid and want to hide away from it. And Peter does the opposite. Peter leans in. What's this? 
the curiosity of the disciple. He can't, it's, it's about Jesus. Like, okay, it's brand new. I've never heard anything like this. I've never seen anything like this. But here's the quality of the disciple again. If it's about Jesus, I want to be a part of it. If you can walk on the water, if you have this kind of power, if you can do these things, if you tell me to, then I can too. So if it's you, tell me to come. I think, I'm just reading between the lines, but I think Jesus is probably amused. Like the shortness of the answer, like I kind of see like Jesus chuckling, like, okay, come Peter. Let's see how this goes. And he's the only one. He's the only brave one. And you can read this story from so many different perspectives, right? You can read it from his bravery. You could read it from his doubt. You can read it from his fear. You can read it from his rescue. You can read it from any angle you want. And they're all there. And they're all instructive. And they're all valuable. And that's my point. Even the failures of the disciples is instructive. Not just for him, but for everybody on the boat. The result of this experience, even including Peter's doubt and failure and gentle rebuke by Jesus. Why did you doubt me? You got out here. You had the boldness. This very often happens with disciples. They have a lot of boldness before they think about it. And then they get involved in the middle of something. And now they're afraid. And now they start to sink. And now they're like, oh, no, what did I get myself into? And they have to cry out to God. And this pattern happens a lot in disciples' lives. But what happens, and if you always try to avoid that, if you're afraid, if you're proud, if you're ashamed, if you can't be wrong, if you can't take a risk, if you can't step out, everybody loses the lesson. Peter's willingness to be brave and to step out of the water, Peter's willingness to lean into the unknown, to lean into the uncomfortable, to lean into the strange, and do it with Jesus in spite of its failure on his... That's, I mean... Peter knows what he's doing. He's grown up on the water, presumably. You don't end up in dad's fishing business if you didn't grow up on the water. So I'm sure he knows how to swim. This must have been a pretty tumultuous environment. Because Peter's afraid. When he starts to sink, it's not like, oh, I'll just swim back to the boat. Peter's worried he's going to die, and he needs Jesus to help him. So it's not a light thing. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not making our trials trivial. They are dangerous. I'm not taking anything away from the danger of the trials in our life. Dangers that can, can defeat our discipleship. Dangers that can destroy us. Dangers that can make us weak and vulnerable in long-term ways. There's, there's real danger in the world. There's real danger in the tests and the trials that we endure. But for the disciple... There's a recourse. And, and, and even when we fail, we can look at our failures as instructive for us and for the people around us. And my hope is that the reason some of these stories are recorded, right, it's one of the, it's one of the apologetic rationales for the veracity of the New Testament is that there's a lot of ugly stuff. There's a lot of failure recorded in the text that if you were just trying to write a good story about how smart and faithful and good you were, wouldn't be recorded. The failures of the disciples are as commonly recorded as their successes. And this is for our good. You don't have to fear failure above all else. 
I would rather fear inactivity or delay or doubt than, than failure. Let me say it another way. I've, I've done things in my life when I was young in particular that to me now look kind of reckless. And I think as an older man, if my son was to come and tell me, hey, Pop, I'm going to go do this thing that you did when you were in your 20s, I would, I would say, hey, let's think about this. <laughs> and that's part of the process of getting older, I think. But what I can say about those things is that I have very, very few regrets. The regrets in my life are tied to inactivity and doubt, not boldness and activity. And God had to refine a lot of things out of me. God had to, I'm still rough for people sometimes. Uh, you should have known me in my 20s. Uh, I, I've, I've had to have a lot of hard edges knocked off in a lot of hard circumstances in my life. But I don't, I don't, I can't think through back in my past, in my life, and think of places where I wish I would have been slower to act or less willing to take a risk on what I thought God was doing in the world around me. Those aren't the places where I have regrets. Even when they didn't all turn out the way that I thought they would. Peter's failure at this place, if we can call it that, it's kind of a mixed success, really. It's success to get out of the boat. It's failure to doubt and f to become afraid in that position and fall. But, but I, it reminds me of, of the man who asks for Jesus to come and heal, who's, who says, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. And that's a really... Mm, that's a really exquisite way to define a disciple. I believe, help my unbelief. There's pieces that are stuck. There's things that, I'm, that I don't know about. There's reservations that I have. There's things that are holding me back. There's things I don't know about. I, I believe, but I need help with the rest. Um, there's a there's a guy who is probably um, these uh, I don't know if I should cite his name or not well I'm just gonna whatever there's a very famous probably today's top um well-known and popularized Marxist is a man by the name of Slavoj Zizek. He's a philosopher and an economist. Um, and he's, he's a short, little, grumpy, contrarian man. Um, and he's, he's also kind of fascinating. In one of the things that he says is that in his estimation, Christianity is the only worldview, the only world religion he's seen 
where God himself expresses doubt. What does he mean by that? He points to Jesus on the cross saying, Lama, Lama, Eli, Eli, Lama, Sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And there is something mm, painfully visceral about that moment on the cross. It, impact, it puts an exclamation point on an already very extreme moment in time where it seems like there's room for even Jesus to be wrestling with his own fear and doubt and difficulty and trial. And so when I look at these scenes with Peter and I see, I see Jesus correcting him and saying, why did you doubt? I don't see it there's other places where Jesus seems much sharper and much more disappointed. But here it seems tender. Here it seems like it didn't have to be this way, son. You could have just, let me help you. But I think that we, there's a tendency that we have sometimes to try to, try to condition and move our lives to a place where we're not going to have to be in those places. In effect, it's like trying to make sure you don't get on the boat and end up on a stormy sea. Like, imagine if the disciples, when Jesus says, hey, go meet me on the other side, and everybody pulls out their weather apps, and they're like, okay, well, there's a storm coming. Did anybody check the radar? Let's make sure we, maybe we should take the long way around. No, it's better off. We'll just wait till the morning. Let's make sure we don't end up in a storm. This is very sensible. And very reasonable. Surely Jesus wouldn't want us to shipwreck in a storm. He needs us to be over there tomorrow. Even if we're late, we should just take it easy, make sure the storm will pass by. I'm guessing like he didn't know. He must have just not been thinking about the storm. So let's just wait here on the beach. In the morning, the radar says things are going to be clear. So we'll get on the boat and then we'll just hustle over and make sure that we avert the storm. That's how I hear a lot of people trying to live their lives. And I think, I think, that sometimes you're supposed to get in the boat and drive into a storm. I think that a lot of my, a lot of my contemporaries, a lot of my brothers and sisters, spend a lot of time wondering why we don't see the Holy Spirit manifesting and working in, in our own lives and doing the things that we're reading about in the New Testament. And the, the line of reasoning goes, if God is supernatural, then why who are we, who are the people of the New Testament, who are the followers of the apostles, who are the church of Jesus Christ, who was told greater things than these shall you do, and we read Mark 16, and we see the things that God's doing in the Bible, and we look around at our very small lives, and we say, where is this for us? And okay, maybe that's proud, maybe it's not for me, but where is it in the world? Where, I mean, is it somewhere? Many, many, many of us ask those questions, and many, many, many of us have spent long time praying about those exact things, and I think, that the reason we don't see God doing things is because we're too busy avoiding the storms. Because I think that at his 
of one of the attributes of God. I don't want to overstate the case. This is my own private theory. I have a theory about the economy of God. I don't think that at his, at his core that God is wasteful. When I look at the efficiency of the natural world around me, when I look at ecosystems, when I look at the conservation of energy and mass and momentum, when I look at how the structure of the world is, God does not seem to be wasteful as like a core principle of reality. And because he's not wasteful, I think that God doesn't invest supernatural attention and energy and help and reserve for people who don't need it. And the people who see God work, the disciples who get to experience God doing the things that only God can do, are the people who put themselves in places where only God can help. And Peter's one of those guys. Peter says, if it's you, tell me to come. Peter's willing to sink if it means a chance at being closer to Jesus. And that's why, that's why Peter's in the inner circle. That's why Peter gets called close. That's why we often find Peter right there, right by Jesus' side, even among the 12. Look at John chapter 6. Here I said we were going to stay in Matthew. Oh, man. I'd read this whole chapter if I could. This is one of my favorites. But I'm going to... So much good stuff here. Let's jump in at 29. Jesus answered and said to them, we've got a ways to go, so stay with me. This is the work of God, that you believe on him whom he hath sent. And they said therefore unto him, What sign showest thou then, that we may see and believe thee? What dost thou work? Our fathers did eat manna in the desert, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, The true Moses gave you not the bread from heaven, but my Father giveth you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven, and giveth life unto the world. And then said they unto him, Lord, evermore give us this bread. And Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. But I said unto you that ye also have seen me and believe not. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. For I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which hath sent me, that all of, of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the, again at the last day. And this is the will of him that sent me, that everyone which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. 
Jews then murmured at him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he saith, I came down from heaven? Jesus therefore answered and said unto them, murmur not among yourselves. No man can come to me except the father which hath sent me draw him and I will raise him up at the last day. It's written in the prophets, and they shall be all taught of God. Every man, therefore, that hath heard and hath learned of the Father cometh unto me. Not that any man hath seen the Father, save he which is of God. He hath seen the Father. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me hath everlasting life. I am that bread of life. Your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which cometh down from heaven that a man may eat thereof and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. And the Jews therefore strove amongst themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? And then Jesus said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me, and I in him. As the living Father hath sent me, and I live by the Father, so he that eateth me, even he shall live by me. This is that bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers did eat manna, and are dead. He that eateth of this bread shall live forever. These things said he in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Many, therefore, of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a hard saying. Who can hear it? When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples murmured at it, he said, did this offend you? Wonder if you shall see the Son of Man ascend up where he was before. It's the spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. But there are some of you that believe not. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were that believed not and who should betray him. And he said, therefore, said I unto you, that no man can come unto me except it were given unto him by my, of my Father. From that time, Many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. This was the line in the sand. And I think this is important for every disciple to understand. Now, I have very specific theological convictions from this passage of text, but that's not what I'm reading it for. The reason I'm reading this is because I want to point out Jesus's attitude towards testing these disciples. And what you will not read as we continue to move forward 
is him running after all of those people that ran away and trying to explain himself and trying to say, no, 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 guys, I was just, you know, it was, it was a tense moment. There's a lot going on there. I was just trying to make a point. But what I really meant was, what does he say? He says the same thing that he'll say to you when you run up against the hard things that you don't want to hear about your life from him. He'll say, does this offend you? And when those things come to bear, when those hard things test the people around you and you, and many people choose not to follow him, you don't get a pat on the back. What you get is a, are you going to leave me too? Is it too much? Everybody left. Are you going to go too? And there's something about the disciples. There's something about Peter. And there's something, when I read that, when I watch people run away from him, I want to know exactly what he means. It's those places that something inside me stirs and says, this is a place people are bailing. This is a place I want in. I've known enough about him by now. I've seen enough of him up to this point. If this is the if this is the dividing line, if this is where people are bailing out, I'm gonna hang on for dear life. I want in on that. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. And then said Jesus unto the twelve, Will ye also go away? And then Simon Peter, our dear brother, answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. And we believe and are sure that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered them, Have not I chosen you twelve? And one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas Iscariot. All the pruning Jesus is doing, all the, this, the even the twelve, even the twelve aren't pure. And when I read Peter saying that, where else shall we go? It's an interesting way to answer, right? Because It's interesting because I don't think he actually understands what Jesus means. I think what he means, what Peter is saying is that, Jesus, I have no idea what you're talking about. I do not get what you just said. All I know is that you said it. And that's enough for me. There's some dilemmas in advocating Christianity. To advocate for that kind of that kind of trust. 
when you can say there's I had a I had a conversation with with my friend Felix one of our one of our shows I was talking about exactly this idea of faith and how there are times in my life when I haven't known that my initial conviction is I don't have to understand I just want to know it's from God and his response to me is that that's very dangerous behavior that's how cults start that's how terror cells start that's how bombers start that's how people end up packing their vans full of ammonium nitrate and blowing up federal buildings is with that kind of blind faith and in part he's right blind faith is a dangerous thing and it behooves us it behooves all of us if we want to be disciples if you want to have this kind of disposition that it is only displayed to somebody who has manifested the kind of life and power and ruling over death and 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 authority that Jesus himself had Because when people present to somebody and say, I don't know what you mean, but I'm just, if you say it, I'm okay with it. It's, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of brokenness that happens in the world from exactly that disposition. And it needs to be reserved. And I think this is why Jesus does such a thorough job of pruning and purging and calling and demonstrating who he is to us is because... The things that he are at, he's asking are not right to ask of anybody else. But the disciple is the one who's decided. The disciple is the one who has given Jesus access to their whole life, their mind, their heart, their possessions, their will, their temperament, their everything. The disciple is the one who's given Jesus access to their whole life. And the disciple has given Jesus access to the way I think. I have a way I think. But it's not, it, that's not unsurrendered. It doesn't stand alone. It has to be correctable by Jesus. And you, you know this when you read the Bible. Like we, we see it over and over again that Jesus is calling people away from everything that's sure and stable in their life. He is messing with their ideas of family, their ideas of nation, their ideas of home, their ideas of family, their ideas of, of God and country. Everything that's sacred to the human existence, Jesus is thrashing in the life of his disciples. You think this about God? You're wrong in all kinds of places. You think this about Israel? You're wrong in all kinds of places. You think this about the kingdom? You want to see the kingdom come? Well, you're going to see the kingdom come, but it's going to be nothing like what you think. You think your family is important? Your family is drastically important, but you don't even know who your family is. You want to be great? That's wonderful. Be great, but you have no idea what it's going to cost you to be great. In every one of these dispositions, in every one of these areas of the disciple's life, he wants to break and reform, break and reform, break and reform. He wants to take the pieces and put them back into a, into a fashion after his own image. <clears throat> Peter passes this test. This is a high point, yeah? 
Who else? Who else are we going to go to? Nobody talks like you. Nobody lives like you. Nobody says the things you say. And I, I, don't, I don't blame him. See, there was room. I don't feel like Jesus is capricious or cruel. There's room. These disciples, Peter saying this, has just watched this whole scene unfold. He just watched all of John 6 unfold. He just watched this whole saga with Jesus and this dispute with the Jews around him and talking about the bread and saying, before Abraham was, I am, and watching them become infuriated and watching him say, eat my flesh and drink my blood or you have no part in the kingdom of God. And watching, he's watched this whole thing and I can just, like a tennis match, like a lot of this stuff with Jesus and those religious leaders is that way. And Peter's just like, I know whose side I am on. Peter passes this test, but brothers and sisters, it was a test. There was a lot of inflammatory things. I didn't even read the whole chapter. There was a lot of inflammatory things said within that speech. And they were designed by Jesus to provoke and elicit a response and to prove the people around him. It was a test, and Peter passed. Flip back over to Matthew and look at the 16th chapter. verse it says when Jesus came to the coast of Caesarea Philippi he asked his disciples saying who do men say that I am who do men say that I the son of man am and they said some say that thou art John the Baptist some Elias and some and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets and he saith unto them but whom say ye that I am and here's Simon Peter again first out of the boat. And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the hope of Israel. You are the lion of the tribe. You are the root and the offspring of David. You are the anointed one. You are the king of the kingdom come. You are the restoration of the kingdom of God. That's what Christ means. Thou art Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjonas, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then charged he his disciples that they should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ. Do you know what Revelation is? Revelation is a beautiful thing. I hope you've had revelations in your life. Revelation is that experience you have when something that you've known for a long time, like it, uh, 
like it's a circuitry and all of a sudden the lights come on and things connect. Things that you had known forever, like you, you probably read it growing up, you knew this verse, it was nothing new, but something about being in that place at that time in that situation and the spirit turns the light switch on and you're like, oh, that's what that is. That's revelation. It's not... Generally, it's not a new thing. It's an old thing that becomes what God meant it to mean. That's what happens right here with Peter. That's why he says, you, this isn't from you, Peter. You, you didn't perceive this. The Spirit has shown you this. Messiah, all these concepts, the restoration of Israel, all that stuff is old stuff. It's stuff that Peter knew. It's stuff that he grew up with, with expectations, etc., etc., etc. But when the Spirit takes that old stuff and makes it light up, that's what he's the one. That's revelation. So this is good, right? This is this is gold star for Peter. Good job, man. You were there. You answered the call. The revelation came. Super cool. You're a good guy. You won this one. But let's keep reading just a little bit. From that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go into Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. Then Peter, first out of the boat, took him and began to rebuke him, saying, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. He turned and said unto Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan. Thou art an offense unto me. For thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that are of men. It's the very next paragraph. He goes from, hey, this is great. God's speaking to you, Peter. This hasn't been revealed to you by men. I'm going to build my church on you. You know, the wordplay is obvious there. Peter means rock, Petros, upon this rock, I'll build my church. Like, this is serious stuff. Like, for Peter, this is like major kudos. Like, you're the man. Peter, I'm going to build my rock. I'm going to build my church on this rock. Peter left that hillside feeling really good about himself. And as soon as they get to the bottom of the hill, Jesus starts talking about, I'm going to go. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be delivered up to the Pharisees. They're going to kill me. And Peter's incensed. Like, I just got my ticket in. Like, I'm, I'm, this stuff's important to me now. Like, I'm in the center of this stuff. Like, you ain't going nowhere. No, no way, no how. We're going to fix this stuff. Like, there's a kingdom to be built, and I'm at the center of it. There is no way that you're going to be killed. We got stuff to do, Jesus. I'm right here. There's, we're, no, 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 no. That's not how it's going to go. And there's something about that interplay between Jesus and Peter that Jesus knows exactly where that comes. He knew where the confession came from. This hasn't been revealed to you from men, but from my Father, which is in heaven. And he knew exactly where this came from, too. From success to failure in a flash.
But here again, Peter's failure. And this is a bad one, right? Like, okay, so the last time we talked about Peter's failure, he was about to get killed. He was dying in the, in the storm. Now, this time, Jesus just called him the devil. It's pretty bad. I don't want Jesus to call me the devil. But what happens? As soon as that interaction happens, then said Jesus unto his disciples. So he says, this, this, you, you, you're, you're acting like the devil. And then he turns around to the disciples and he says this famous expression. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life will lose it and whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and, when he, shall re and he shall reward every man according to his works. The failure of Peter becomes the lesson for the disciples again. The failure of the disciple becomes the lesson for the disciples. That's the narrative arc that we're all reading. The failure of the disciples becomes the lesson for you and me. So that Jesus can teach us through what happens with them. And, and when, we, when we exist and thrive and live within community, this doesn't happen just inside the pages of Scripture. When we walk together, when we're disciples together, we see these exact kind of moments happen in our brothers and sisters' lives. We watch success and failure, success and failure, and we have opportunities to learn and grow together just like the 12. And somebody in our midst, maybe it's me, maybe it's another brother in the church, they have a terrible failure, like, hey man, you really blew it there. That was a big, big mess. But look what God taught us. Failure is not the enemy. I wish we could understand this. I wish I could understand this. Failure is not the enemy. Inactivity, fear, and doubt is the enemy. I was going to look at the... the uh, controversies, there's happened several times, the controversies between the um, disciples over who's the greatest, because that's another opportunity. You know, Peter doesn't get named specifically in there, but I just have to believe he was center, front and center of all that. I mean, James and John certainly were. There's a specific case when Mrs. Zebedee, Salome was her name, by the way, when Salome asked that her sons can sit on his right and his left hand. So there's, James and John may have been the center of those controversies, but it's hard for me to imagine that Peter missed out on that quarrel. <laughs> and there, you know, in that scene, in those scenes, Jesus is trying again and again. You know, one time he takes the child, he sets him on his lap, the other time with with Salome, he says, this isn't mine to give, but can you drink of the cup that I'll cup? Like he's trying to recondition the way that they think about these things. And there again, the failure of the disciples becomes the lesson of Jesus for the church. Okay. Want to be great? 
Okay, you can be great. You all, brothers and sisters, I have, I have said this many, many times in my preaching career. You can be great in the kingdom of God. That is a perfectly fine ambition. I, in fact, I, I, I encourage you to want to be great in the kingdom of God. But you need to know what that means. And it doesn't mean the things that appeal to your psyche and your, and your, your vanity like it does in the world. When you pursue greatness in the kingdom, it hurts and it's hard. And it, it makes you, it, it breaks down all those things that cause greatness in the world because it's, it's upside down. But I don't want to, I don't have time. We'll move on. Look at Matthew 17. We're right there, right? In verse 1. After six days, Jesus taketh Peter, James, and John, his brother, and bringeth them up into a high mountain apart, and was transfigured before them. And his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as the light. And behold, there appeared unto him Moses and Elias talking with him, and then answered Peter and said unto Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If thou wilt. Let us make here three tabernacles, one for thee, and one for Moses, and one for Elias. While he yet spoke, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud which said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their face and were sore afraid. And Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise, and be not afraid. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no man save Jesus only. Peter, first one out of the boat. Hey, I'm so glad I got to see this. This is amazing. This is going to be like, forget the temple. This is like Jewish Disneyland. We're going to have a tabernacle for Jesus and a tabernacle for Moses and a tabernacle for Isaiah and everybody's going to come and everybody's going to like, this is the holy mountain. This is the thing. This is it. No, Peter, it's not it. You just happen to get a glimpse of something. You just, you just ha the window just peaked for a moment in a little bit of glory and it overwhelms you. Calm yourself down. God himself has to calm Peter down in this one. But what a lesson. It's not about Moses. It's not about Isaiah. It's not the law. It's not the prophets. Hear ye him. He's the one I'm putting in front of you. He's the one I want you to listen to. This is my son. Hear him. Listen up, Peter. It's been a lot of up and down up to this point, and then it gets really far down from here on. Matthew 26.
on about around verse 20 is when they're talking about who the betrayer is. And then 26, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup and he gave thanks and he gave it to them saying, Drink ye all of it. For this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say unto you, I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. A lot of times people read that and they don't stop. Jesus has a 2,000-year-old Nazarite vow that he's currently living under waiting for me and you and there's going to be a day when that vow comes to the end and the kingdom comes and Jesus himself has been fasting from the goodness of the earth for these 2,000 years and there'll be a wedding supper of the lamb when that stops that's really powerful stuff but that's not what I was focusing on. When they had sung a hymn, they went out into the Mount of Olives. And then saith Jesus unto them, All ye shall be offended because of me this night, for it's written, I will smite the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered abroad. But after I'm risen again, I'll go before you into Galilee. And Peter answered first out of the boat and said unto him, Though all men should be offended because of thee, yet will I never be offended. Peter's incensed. How dare you, Jesus? I would never, never, never leave you. I will never. Though all men shall be offended because of thee, yet will I never be offended. And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee that this night... Before the cock crow, thou shalt deny me thrice. And Peter said unto him, Though I should die with thee, yet will I not deny thee. And likewise also said all the disciples. What are we supposed to make of that? Hard, you know. I, what what do we wish he would have said? Yeah, you're right. I'm gonna deny you. That doesn't sound like a good. Doesn't sound like a good resolution. I think the problem. I think the problem is a couple of things. I think it's the emphaticness of his own confidence in himself. I think it's the unwillingness of Peter, first out of the boat, to consider that he could do something like that, especially when Jesus is challenging him with himself. It's pretty gracious the way that Jesus does this until the end. The end, it gets pretty sharp. But before that, it's a very gentle leading. I, I, I feel like Jesus is trying to say, 
you guys are going to all run away from me and betray me tonight, but it's okay. On the other side, I'll go before you in Galilee. Like he's giving them kind of some specific ways. Like, hey, on the other side of this thing, I'll be there. It'll be okay. And it's a very tender, kind, and loving thing for Jesus to do. And he's trying to lead them. He's trying to give them. And what, what, what I think should have happened is humility. What should have happened is for Peter, first out of the boat, to say, I don't want to do that. I, I believe you, Jesus. I know that you're trying to lead us, but I really don't want to do that. Right here, right now, I can say, that's the last thing I want to do. I trust you. I believe you. It hurts me. I don't, I just want you to know I love you and I don't want to do that. That probably would have been something more like the right response. And I think one of the lessons from this particular failure is that when we as disciples feel like Jesus is confronting something in us and hey, this happens with your brothers and sisters in the church, sometimes it'll happen to your family, maybe it happens with your parents. I know it happens with my wife is that sometimes when she or they are trying to point out something that amiss in me, my immediate reaction is like, what? What do you think of me? This is what Peter's saying, right? What do you, who do you think I am, Jesus? Do you think I'm some kind of villain, some kind of creep, some kind of guy who hasn't been with you? Because Jesus, Peter says very clearly and emphatically in other places before, when he talks about giving up for the kingdom, Peter rightfully says, hey, Jesus, we've given up everything for you. I've been following you around in the wilderness for years. My family, my wife, my children are back in some place. I haven't seen them since I don't know when. I've given up everything for you. And Jesus says, you're right, you have. And you'll have a hundredfold more in this life and a life to come. So it's not like Peter has no place to make claims and to state claims about who he is and what he's done. But the problem the problem is that he can't consider his own weakness and he's using his past and defining his present. And he's trying to say, who do you think I am? He's taking the, the correction of God as a personal offense. And that's what happens when somebody in the church or somebody in your family or somebody close to you says, hey, I think this is a real problem in your life. And you're like, who do you think I am? You think I've never done anything good before? You think I don't know how to be faithful? You think I don't love God? You think I don't know whatever? When that bluster that rises up, that, no, that's not who I am. That's what Peter's doing. And when you get into that kind of state, you might as well just close your eyes and plug your ears and say, no, 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 because that's what you're doing spiritually. <laughs> when you feel your blood rise like that, when you feel that offense building, when you feel that, who do they think that I am? What well, I've lived with them all these years. I've loved them. I've served them. I've blessed them. I've worked with them. And they think I'm some kind of... That's where disciples fail. And this one, this one almost does them in. 
Uh, Peter overcomes a lot of stuff. This is the one. This is the one that he almost doesn't come back from. And that's instructive. <clears throat> and he... Look at verse 35. Peter said unto him, Though I should die with thee, yet will I not deny thee. Likewise, all, all the disciples said this. Verse 36. Then cometh Jesus to them into a place called Gethsemane, and saith unto the disciples, Sit ye here while I go and pray yonder. And he took with him, he takes with him, Peter and James and John, the sons of Zebedee, and began to be sorrowful and very heavy. And then saith he unto them, my soul is exceeding sorrowful, even unto death. Tarry ye here and watch with me. And he went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, Oh, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. And he cometh unto the disciples and findeth them asleep. already failed like the moment he walks out of that last encounter the stage is already set for failure the inability to hear sets up the next fall the inability to stop and consider and humble himself means it's just going to be trip after trip after trip went away again the second time and prayed, saying, Oh, my father, this cup may not pass away from me except I drink it, thy will be done. And he came and found them asleep again. For the eyes were heavy, and he left them and went away again and prayed the third time, saying the same words. Then cometh he to his disciples and saith unto them, Sleep on now and take your rest. Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. Behold, he's at the hand, doth betray me. He's He's already, he didn't deny Jesus three times, but he failed Jesus three times as soon as he left that event. All of his bluster was about how much he loved and served and wanted to be with Jesus. And the one time, the one time that I can think of in the whole gospel narrative that Jesus actually appeals to his disciples for help, there's none of it to be had. I don't know, am I missing something? I don't know if there's any other places where Jesus says, hey guys, can you help me? One time he does it. And there's no help for him to be had. There's some lessons about that too, but it's a different message. <clears throat> okay, so now we go out of that. And while he yet spoke, lo, Judas, one of the twelve, came, and with him a great multitude with swords and staves from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now he that betrayed him gave him them a sign, saying, Whosoever I shall kiss, that same as he, hold him fast. And forthwith he came to Jesus and said, Hail, Master, and kissed him. And Jesus said unto him, Friend, wherefore art thou come? 
Then came they and laid hands on Jesus and took him. And behold, one of them, Peter, first out of the boat, which were with Jesus, stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck a servant of the high priest and smote off his ear. See, the problem is when you go through that scenario, when you go through that, I'll never do, I'll never betray you, I'll never betray you, I'll never betray you. When you stake that claim on your pride and your vanity, then you're committed to your own cause. What Peter's doing, and the reason, why does Peter, you know, he's the guy that sat at the, he was at the Sermon Mount and the Sermon Plain. He knows what Jesus said about this stuff. He knows full well. He knows as good as anyone what Jesus thinks about this. At least he could. The reason Peter is the one that grabs the sword and cuts off the high priest servant's ear is because Peter is trying to prove to Peter that he's not a coward. But all those feelings he had when Jesus said, you're going to betray me, and he said, no, I won't, no, I won't, no, I won't, I will never, 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 ever, was actually Peter's fear that he would. And the reason he pulls the sword in the garden is the same reason that men always resort to violence, because they're afraid. They're afraid. And Peter was afraid. Afraid of the situation, he was afraid that his master was going, but most of all, he was afraid that if he didn't, he'd be betraying Jesus. He had created that construct where he had to act that way to prove to himself that he wasn't the betrayer. If you analyze that structure, this is one of the most common ways that disciples fail. God will do something to try to tell you, to try to show you, and you'll react in a wrong way, and you'll raise up in yourself, and you'll say, not me, and you'll reject that. And then, then you'll start to f have problems, and then in order to preserve yourself, and your ego, and your place, and your own idea about you, you'll resort to very, very bad things that you know disciples shouldn't do. And then what often happens, and why this almost was fatal flaw for Peter, is that then you then all the guilt and the shame falls on you. And as hard as it is to have done wrong, it's even harder to acknowledge that the person that you told was dead wrong about you was actually bullseye right. And the guilt and the shame of all that has literally driven people out of the church. Out of fellowship with God. Out of a life of health and peace. And it almost did to Peter. If you want to watch that play out, look at flip over to Luke 22. This one kills me. Luke 
same story. Luke's, we're in Luke because it tells the ending a little bit differently. Uh, 47, while he yet spoke, behold, a multitude, and he that was called Judas, one of the twelve, went before him, and he drew near unto Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said unto him, Judas, betrayest thou the Son of Man with a kiss? Can I pause? I, I, I hate to do this. This is a rabbit trail. I, I, it has nothing to do with what we're talking about, but it's important. Do you all know the reason that we use the Christian greeting? The reason we kiss our brothers and sisters is because of this story. The Christian greeting is not a thing for old guys to do. The Christian greeting is a Christian greeting. And the reason the kiss is significant is not because it was customary in the ancient world, not because we're just, you know, throwback conservatives and we do things old ways and we like ancient things. That is not why we use the kiss for the Christian greeting. The reason we use the kiss for the Christian greeting is because every time that you greet your brother, every time you sisters greet your sister, what you're saying, what you're saying implicitly, because this is the framework that all of our lives revolve around, this story, this narrative, this betrayal in the garden that leads to the crucifixion, that leads to the resurrection, is the central piece of betraying Christ. And when you kiss your brother, you're saying, either I am Judas or I am not. The reason disciples greet one another with a holy kiss is it's being distinguished from the betrayer's kiss. And when you meet your brothers and you meet your sisters and you kiss them, you have an internal witness, an internal compass that either makes you feel like a Judas or makes you feel like this is love. The Christian greeting is not a thing for old Mennonites. The Christian greeting is for people who are proving their discipleship. It's a way that disciples distinguish themselves as not betrayers. What kind of things would make you feel like Judas When you have bad feelings, like when you go, like, okay, there's a couple ways this, this works out. Like when you see somebody across the room and you don't want to get near them, that's, that's Judas stuff. And then when you do get near him, if, you, if you're in a part of a people, and it's important to have these customs in our churches, if you're a part of a people who use the Christian greeting, and then you lean in to kiss each other, you just feel like, ugh. And that, ugh, is I don't like you, and I'm kissing you. I have all these problems, and all that stuff flashes through your heart. And it's the internal compass, the internal witness, that you're playing the Judas. I'm kissing a man, but I'm mad at him. I don't like him. I have problems with him. There's unresolved issues. That's Judas. And when you walk away from that, you feel guilty. You're like, ugh. And if you, if you don't listen to that, if you don't listen to that conscience, if you don't set that stuff right, if you don't go to that brother and make things right, say, hey, I have problems with you. I'm sorry. Here's, what I, here's where I'm at in all this. Like, I shouldn't be this way. I, I, I can tell there's just tension want to be that way. I want to make it right. If you don't do that, then you'll start to distance yourself. And the kiss, the greeting brings us close. Right? So, you know, here we live in community, and so like, I, I, David Anderson lives downstairs from me. I don't, I, don't, I don't give him a Christian greeting every time we meet each other at the mailbox. Like, it's just too much if you live in community. But we do try to focus when we get together for the assembly, for a meeting, for communion, for when we're together as the church, we want to greet each other with a holy kiss because we're, we're bearing testimony. Like what I'm saying is I'm not a Judas. 
I'm here as your brother in good faith. I'm not your Judas. And nobody knows but me if that's true. And leaving that out there, it's like it's a stroke of genius. This is a really brilliant thing that happened in the church the way God put this together. The Christian greeting is a really, really beautiful, exquisite way of testing God's people. It's an internal witness that says, I'm either right or I'm not right. It wasn't at all part of my notes. Let's jump back in. When they which were about him saw that he would follow, they said unto him, Lord, shall we smite with the sword? One of them smote the servant, the high priest, and cut off his right ear. And Jesus answered and said, Suffer ye thus far. And he touched his ear and healed him. So beautiful. And then Jesus said to the chief priests and captains of the temple and the elders which were coming to him, Be come out against a thief with swords and staves. When I was daily with you in the temple, you stretched forth no hands against me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. Okay, jump down to 63. And the men that held Jesus mocked him and smote him. And when they had blindfolded him, they struck him on the face and asked him, saying, Prophesy, who is it that smote thee? And many other things blasphemously spoke against him. Uh, we missed it. Back up. Um, 54. Then took they him and led him and brought him into the high priest's house. And Peter followed afar off. And when they had kindled the fire in the midst of the hall, and were set down together, Peter sat down among them. But a certain maid beheld him as he sat by the fire, and earnestly looked upon him and said, This man was also with him. And he denied him, saying, Woman, I know him not. And after a little while, another saw him and said, Thou art also of them. And Peter said, Man, I'm not. And about the space of one hour after, another confidently affirmed, saying, Of a truth, this fellow also was with him, for he's a Galilean. And Peter said, Man, I know not what thou sayest. And immediately, while he yet spoke, the cock crew, and the Lord turned and looked upon Peter. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said unto him before the cock crow, Thou shalt deny me thrice. And Peter went out and wept bitterly. I wish this story wasn't a pattern. I wish it was a rare, unique gesture that happened because of some kind of divine providence, but it's not as a pattern. And this is the this is the step, like here, like you get caught up in the you get caught up in the betrayal, caught up in the sin. And for whatever whatever's propelling you or motivating you, whatever lust or fear is pushing you forward quicker than you can think, quicker than you can reason through the consequences. You come to the end, and there you face Jesus, a disappointed Jesus, a disappointed, disheveled, and abused Jesus, and you recognize, I'm the one. A lot of people, a lot 
of people can't look me in the eyes after that. I've talked to so many people that say, I'm too far gone. I've done too much. I can't go back. I can't see him again. There's one part of enduring to the end that's living in this broken world and dealing with the hostility of a sinful broken world and a sinful broken self and all these things. But there's a really important part of enduring to the end is just being willing in that place, in that, that caught in the act in the middle of the thing I said I would never do, the thing I said I would never be, and there he is looking right at me. There's a significant part of enduring to the end that's just being willing to not run away. To say you're right. Judas couldn't. Judas couldn't look at him again. Judas left from there with his 30 pieces, feeling, I'm sure, whatever sense of satisfaction that he showed Jesus and the disciples who was the boss. And as soon as he got away from there, that money just rotted his soul. And he couldn't, he couldn't bear to see anybody again, much less Jesus. He couldn't bear, here's the worst thing, he couldn't bear to see himself again. And that's why, that's why God calls the things sin that are sin. It's not, it's not capricious. It's not... It's not killjoy. It's not megalomania. It's not God just wanting his way. The things that God tells us to stay away from, the things that he calls sin, are the things that make death. It's the goodness and the mercy of God that tells us sin is sin. I could understand if after that, Jesus, Peter, first out of the boat, had beat Judas to the gallows, to the noose. I wouldn't have been surprised if that's the way the story went. Fortunately, fortunately, all the lead up to this moment made Peter more resilient than that. The successes and failures of his life allowed him to go through this great cataclysmic failure. But if he had avoided the contest, if he had hid away, if he had been afraid to move forward, if he had neglected to enter into what Jesus was trying to lead him through to teach him the lessons that he needed to learn to come up to this point this, it almost breaks him anyhow but rather than going and hanging himself like Judas in his betrayal, in his denial in his rejection of the one he loved he just tries to go back 
he ends up at a place where he says, it's a good run, guys. Going back to the boat. I'm out of here. I'm done. I gave it my all, and it didn't work. I failed. I failed him. I failed him when it mattered. I'm going to go fishing. It's the only thing I'm good for. It's the only thing I know. It's the only thing I can do. And that's better than killing himself. It's better than could be. But it's also failure. He still doesn't want to look Jesus in the eyes. And how compassionate, how graceful is Jesus to his disciples to show up there where they're fishing. Chases him one more time and the story ends where it began at the fishing boat. It's really... And it comes full circle, comes right back around. It says, here you are, back on these boats. I thought we left these boats, boys. I told you on the other side, I'd go before you to Galilee. Here we are. You ready to start again? And the, the, the passion of the disciple, the, the, the boldness of the disciple, the one who gives Jesus access to his whole life, allows Peter that that drive, that zeal for who Jesus is allows Peter to overcome himself and to say, okay, if you'll have me, I'll do it again. And Peter is first out of the boat. He sees the fish by the fire. He knows it's Jesus. And he literally jumps out of the boat. place to end and pass my time. Don't avoid the tests. <laughs>